Amen. Thank you, Michelle and Jessica. Appreciate that. Once and for all. Well, welcome, everybody, this morning. Welcome to our guests and uh, anybody willing to help Jeff out on the farm is a friend of ours. So you're always lots to do for kingdom ministry. Well, we are in the book of Matthew. We are already on sermon number two in this book, flying right along. Uh, And last time we just introduced the book, we introduced the book and then the man, and we found that the gospel of Matthew... The message, the overall message, is that Jesus is a sovereign king. And each gospel has its own flair or its own theme. But that's the theme of this gospel. And that's what we're going to hear for quite some time now. Uh, a time yet to be determined as far as how long will it take us to get through this book. But he is the king. And as a king, he has a kingdom. And in this kingdom, he has subjects. And he also has enemies. But he also has an army in this kingdom. And he has an outpost to his kingdom. The outpost is the church, Jesus Christ. It's New Covenant Fellowship. And so we are uh, fulfilling the role of the outpost this morning by King Jesus as we come and avail ourselves to the preaching of his word, through prayers, all the things that we've already done, through praise, exalting the name of Christ, being a light to the world, exhibiting his grace. These are things that the king wants his outpost to do. And then we also looked at uh, not just the book, but the man, that is the author, and that's Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector. Tax collectors in that day were just the the low of the lowest um, because they were considered traitors by their own people. Being used by the government that has the Israelites in subjection to collect taxes for them, to, to make them an even wealthier nation and the Israelites even poorer. And tax collectors not only were considered traitors uh, to their countrymen, but they also had the reputation of being cheats, of being greedy. And they would put money in their pockets whenever they had an opportunity. And so this tax collector, Matthew, was called by Jesus. This tax collector that could only find friends of, with other low lives, the, the murderers, the thieves, the prostitutes, they they were outcasts, and so they made their own little society. And yet, Jesus became his friend, the friend of sinners, and now he has this good friend, Jesus. So he was called from a tax collector, and now he is an apostle by the power and the grace of God. And so that was our introduction to this book. This morning, we're going to examine the first 17 verses. Actually, um, this time and the next sermon as well. And the theme of these verses is the royal line. So keep that in mind. We're talking about the royal line as we read these verses. Because if you're going to be a king, then you have to have the proper pedigree. You have to have the proper credentials. Uh, We're talking about royalty. And royalty means bloodline, relations. So you have to be related to someone royal somewhere down the line in order to fit these Roles, And that's how it works in some cultures and in some nations. And that's how Israel operated ever since the time of David, who was promised the kingdom eternally. He was promised that he would have a descendant to reign and rule as king over the Jews. David was a man after God's own heart. Of course, the first king, Saul, 
was rejected by God. And he failed so badly that he was removed from the line and removed from the throne. David took his place. In America, we don't really, we're not really that familiar with uh, kings and queens and family royalty and so forth. Uh, we do things um, by the people and for the people. We have the great privilege of being able to appoint or vote and have a say in who rules over us. So we don't have a king, Obama, if you could imagine. Uh, we have President Obama. We have governors. We have judges and so forth. And these are mostly the people in the most important positions are voted in. They are put there by the people. And then sometimes they, having been voted into office, will appoint people. But we are a country that is identified and really operates and we pride ourselves on we the people, by the people, for the people. History says that our very first president, George Washington, was um, solicited to be the king. They wanted to make him a king. And he said no, because he understood the evils that a monarchy can possess when one person or one family possesses all that kind of power. So no, this is going to be a nation that is for, by the people and for the people. Well, this isn't the case in many countries, even today. There are still monarchies, there's still rulers, still royal lines. According to uh, <clears throat> my little quick online research, there are still 27 countries that have some kind of uh, monarchy in place. Of course, the one that we would be most familiar with would be Queen Elizabeth II. But there are sultans, there are princes. There are uh, queens and kings and emperors, what have you, and all pertains to a royal line. So the first 17 verses of the book of Matthew are, it's the begat section, the genealogies, and such and such, begat, such and such. And a lot of times <clears throat> during the Christmas season, we turn to the book of Matthew because it tells a great Christmas story. And we begin with verse 18. We skip over all the begats. But we can't skip over them today because this is where we find the foundation for Matthew's message of Jesus is the king. It helps us understand what's really going on there. So I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 1, first 17 verses of the book of Matthew. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. By the way, you'll recognize a lot of times when you read a genealogy, you're hearing all these names, you never heard of them before, you don't know how to pronounce them. But notice how familiar we are with Jesus' genealogy. So God makes us familiar with all these characters that we've already learned about because they play a, a very important role in bringing about the Savior. So, verse 3, And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, 
Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. And at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatiel, and Shatiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Nathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now i got to catch my breath after all that. So first, we want to look at the importance of the pedigree, because what we find here is the king revealed. Notice that Matthew starts with the family tree, and he traces Jesus back to Abraham, and then back up to David, and then back up to uh, Joseph, Jesus' father. Now, Luke also has genealogies. Now, Matthew chases Jesus back to Abraham. Luke, in his genealogy, and we'll look at a few pieces of that shortly. He follows Jesus all the way back to Adam to show that Jesus is rightfully a son of man. If you know John's gospel, he follows Jesus back to God. So you can't go back any farther than that. But as a, a young nation, I think that uh, the, the way that we were formed, family trees aren't as important to us. Um, a lot of us have a hard time tracing our our, our family tree back. I know that I don't really know a lot about my family tree. I have bits and pieces of history that my dad has given to me. I know very little uh, of my mother's side uh, from Boston, Massachusetts. And I never met my grandfather on her side. He, w- he died before I was born. But on my father's side, he's fed me some history through the years and uh, the, the name Montagne's French used to be La Montaigne and was traced back to the French Huguenots, which were persecuted around the time of the Reformation. Um, they were Protestants persecuted by the Catholics and for their following um, the teachings of John Calvin. And I hope that they, my ancestors find it interesting that I am also inspired by the teachings of John Calvin, although I have not been persecuted that I know of for those teachings. So there's just different family histories. Um, My dad shared that there's a document that he has during the American Revolution. You will recall perhaps the Minutemen. Well, there was a meeting called at such and such La Montaigne's house, and he was he's an ancestor through the Minutemen. They they met there. Then uh, I think another bit of information was there was a captain in the Civil War, Captain Montagna. By that time, the name had changed to Montagna. So he fought for the North. 
And that's about all I know about my family line. In Jesus' day, of course, the genealogies were very important. The children were drilled to recite, to learn, to memorize their family line. That's how important it was. I never drilled my kids to memorize where they came from. I don't know that you have done that in your home uh, as well. But in the days of Jesus and all along, it's been very important who you come from. Who is your father? I don't know how many of you can recite your family tree. Of course, if you're um, a redneck, it might be a little easier for you. As you say, uh, who's your father, Junior? Well, he's Junior. Who's your granddaddy? Junior. Who was before that? Well, Junior. So it's a little easier for the rednecks. But family heritage was very important for the people in the Bible because God gave individuals and their offspring promises. Specific promises, unique promises that, that didn't apply to everybody. They applied to certain families or tribes or individuals. And so when God speaks into the world like this and speaks to humanity like this, well, because they were followers of God, they took him very, very serious. So it wasn't just a matter of family pride. It was a matter of spiritual heritage and your place in the kingdom of God. And so when Joshua, for instance, came into the land of Canaan, the promised land that God had given them with his 12 tribes. They couldn't just pitch a tent and build wherever they wanted. God had assigned them as their inheritance certain pieces of geography. This tribe gets this one and this tribe gets that one. It was by God's design and by God's plan that he had. And so it was their responsibility. He assigned certain tribes responsibilities to go in there conquer this particular territory and reign and rule over and live there for the glory of God. And so sometimes God assigns tribes or even families or certain churches or groups of people. He uses us in unique ways to come together to accomplish family sized kingdom business. Sometimes it takes a tribe or a big church or, a, or an organization of some kind to accomplish things that we cannot accomplish as individuals. So churches have uniqueness, ministries have unique things in within the kingdom, in the reign and rule of Christ that they fulfill for King Jesus, for the glory of God. We have responsibilities. So godly families make a family sized impact on the kingdom of God. Heritage is important. We have looked at Ezra and Nehemiah and Ezra was a great reformer. And when he got back into The promised land, having been in captivity, he wanted to reform the temple ways and the priesthood. And as the way he did that was that he looked at those that were serving as priests and needed ask for documentation. You had you couldn't just serve as a priest in the temple. You had to come from the line of Levi or Aaron. And for those that were serving in the temple or serving as priests that could not prove that they had Levi or Aaron in their ancestry, they were kicked out. Because according to God's law, that's the way it operated. Only those tribes were given this particular responsibility. You had to have the the proper priestly pedigree. Isn't it interesting that it was by bloodline? And Ezra didn't go in there and say, 
who is serving the most uh, effectively in here? Well, we can't kick him out because he's the best servant we have. Or he has the best heart for God. It's a matter of assignment. It's a matter of calling. And, and, and the sovereign God can do this. He can assign certain people to fulfill certain tasks. Well, likewise, not just anybody can pop up and hail themselves as the king of the Jews. If you hail yourself as the king of the Jews, they would want to know your bloodline. You would have to be able to trace it back to King David. So what does Matthew do? To begin in beginning his gospel, but trace Jesus back to David, back to Abraham, who received the promise that from him he would bless all the nations through his descendants. And then it got a little more specific through the tribe of Judah. The royal line would come through the tribe of Judah and then an actual family, David's family. And so the Jews would be looking for a descendant of David's. To reign and rule on the throne. So that's what Matthew does. If you were a Jew in that day and you were reading this gospel and and you saw that he started with this genealogy, you would immediately understand what he was doing. Tracing Jesus Jesus back. He's giving him uh, the right for kingship. Solidifying that. Now, they didn't get that right away. They rejected him, actually. The Jews, of course, this wasn't written until after Jesus had died. But while Jesus was there, they rejected him. And one of the reasons that they rejected him is because if you're thinking about you're waiting for the king, you have in your mind what that king's going to look like. Obviously, he's going to probably come from some great, wealthy, powerful family who's living, living in the city and has a lot of land or so forth. Great reputation. And here comes this guy, Jesus, who uh, it, he, he says these wonderful, profound things and they're scratching their heads. They're kind of like... This isn't lining up because this, this guy's speaking with authority. He's incredibly wise. Uh, he, he has power. But isn't he just the carpenter's son? And doesn't he just come from Podunk, Nazareth? They just weren't expecting the, the king to come into the world in such humble means as Jesus did. So they didn't put two and two together. They rejected him. And that was one of the reasons why? So Matthew makes it clear that Jesus was indeed fit to be king. Traces him to David, then from David to Abraham. Then he traces him from Abraham all the way back up the line to Joseph. <clears throat> so Joseph is Jesus's uh, father. Now, the interesting thing about this is that though Joseph can be traced back to David... And Joseph really was in the royal bloodline. We all know that Joseph is not Jesus' blood father. So what's the point in that? Well, um, the law of Israel was that if you adopted someone into your family, they were legally a family member. They took on your name legally and they were a legal heir as if they really were blood. So everything, there, was, there wasn't any legal difference in someone who was adopted as opposed to someone who was uh, born by blood. Everybody in the community recognized Jesus as Joseph's son. The scriptures don't anywhere say that Joseph was Jesus's blood father. And in the few places that we even find it, it's careful to show us that it's not. But the community recognized Joseph as 
Jesus his legitimate father. It gets a little more interesting than that. When we look at Luke's genealogy, we find uh, that he traces Jesus back to Adam. When Luke begins his gospel, he he goes three chapters. He's already into Jesus's ministry. Jesus has already grown up. And then he just stops in his gospel and does a genealogy. He goes back to Jesus's birth. Kind of a strange place to do it instead of beginning his gospel like that. But he wanted to show uh, who Jesus was and where he came from. And in doing that, here's what he says in chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, and he had already given the genealogy, so I'm, I'm giving you the very short version. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. So there's two things interesting about that. First, he points out, That he is the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. So he is letting us know that he is not the biological father. Uh, He was was conceived by the Holy Spirit through the Virgin Mary. So God is the rightful father. So he's pointing that out. But I'm not sure if you caught the second very interesting thing. And that is... Notice who Joseph's father is in Luke's genealogy. So in Matthew's genealogy, verse 16, who's Joseph's father? It says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. By the way, Matthew doesn't call him the father of Jesus either biologically. He calls him the husband of Mary, which is kind of unorthodox. So in Verse 16 of Matthew, it's Jacob. That's Joseph's father. And yet Luke, in chapter 3, verse 23, says that Joseph's father is Healy. So, by a divine miracle, did Joseph have two fathers? No. What this is, Luke is, is, uh, Healy is Joseph's father-in-law. What Luke does in his genealogy is he traces Jesus back through Mary's bloodline, not through Joseph's bloodline. So when you chase, when you trace Jesus back through Mary's bloodline, where does she land? Is he fit to be king? He is fit to be king because he, if you were to read Luke's genealogy, he is traced back also to David. So no matter what direction you go with Jesus, whether you take the legal route as the adopted son of Joseph, whether you take the bloodline that he has through Mary, whatever direction you take or route you take, you land in the same place. Jesus has every divine and earthly right to rule as a king. Interesting thing, and won't go into it, but when you follow um, Joseph's side, he goes back to David and he is from the son Solomon. When you follow Mary's side, she goes back to one of David's sons, but it's Nathan. David had more than one son. David got around in his day and had many sons, but they were um, traced back to different sons of David, but both royal line. So that's the point. He's solidifying this, the credentials that Jesus has. To the people that he has a right to rule over you. That kind of changes things. 
If you think if we recognize Christ as king, a sovereign king who has absolutely every right to rule over us, then where do we stand? Matthew's going to challenge us time and time again with the fact that Jesus is real. He's historical. He's not just some figment of our imagination or some spiritual experience that never landed or grounded. He is absolutely real. He's earthly and divine. And because he really came and really died and really rose again and he is the king, then we have to make a choice. We have to make a decision. What do we do with this fact? So Matthew's going to constantly be, be uh, challenging us with credentials and the reality of Christ's right to reign. He has a right to reign over our lives. He has a right to tell us what to do. He deserves our worship. That's just the way it is. And we will be challenged in that. Are we recognizing Christ as king? Now, I know that a lot of this sounds academic. And sometimes when you preach through genealogies, there are people sitting there thinking, why do I have to listen to this? I mean, my, my marriage is on the rocks. I don't know how much longer I can hold on. My children are in rebellion. I'm single and I want to be married or I'm married. And now I'm wishing I was single. There's, I'm, about, I'm in a financial crisis. All these things are going on in my life. And he's up there talking about genealogies. And it sounds academic, but here's the thing. Jesus is either king or he's not. He's either king of our lives. If he is not king... If this is just mythological, then we will remain hopeless. We don't have a higher person to go to. There's no one to appeal to in our situations where we have bottomed out or hit ceilings. But because he is the king, all of these situations that it might seem and experiences that we're experiencing in life, we really do have someone that reigns and rules and calls a shot on earth. And he knows about what we're experiencing. And cares about what we are experiencing. Because he's of the royal line. And whatever it is, this very morning, we know, according to Matthew, it's in the king's hands because he's the king. And that can bring us comfort. And is intended to bring us comfort. And so we see the pedigree. And the other point here, I've entitled, The Grind of God's Thank you, Corky. Appreciate that. How's the water, by the way? Is it okay? Okay, that's the important thing. All right. That would have been funny if it would have spoken. That'd be great. Hopefully it won't spill over when I get my big self in there. The grind of God's mill. So what is the grind of God's mill? I was reading one of Timothy Keller's commentaries on the book of uh, Matthew. And he, and he just made this statement that absolutely intrigued me. So I just hung there for a while. And so we're just finished with this second point. But he says um, regarding these genealogies. The mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. 
The mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. And what, he, what is he talking about? He's talking about time. So when you, when you start looking at generation after generation after generation, we're talking about time. So, you know, I've been in this church for a while, and I've watched some of you grow up. I mean, I, I, I helped keep you in the nursery, and then you, you grow up, and then you... You get married. That makes me feel old. That, that makes, and then you have children. And then I realize, wow, time is a lot of time has passed here. And so when we talk about these generations, I can read it in, in a few minutes. But you're talking about a lot of time that, that God took to set all this up and bring it into place. So, so when the, he gave the promise, he called Abraham out of the tent. And he said, look at the stars. Just look up into the sky, the real sky. And, and I am going to bless your descendants. They're going to be many. And from them will come a descendant that will bless the entire world. Now, it was about 2,000 years after that promise... That Mary, the Virgin Mary, sung the Magnificent, where she says uh, he remembered his promise. This is you know, the news she gets that she's going to mother the Savior. He remembered his promise to our father Abraham, even as he said. Two thousand years, the mills of God grind slowly. And it was another about approximately a thousand years from the promise to David, where you can actually draw your bead on one family to be looking for the Messiah. About another thousand years uh, between David and Jesus. And then there was between that thousand years, we looked at the deportation when we looked at Ezra and Nehemiah, where they were disciplined. And then they came back and we watched them be reestablished in their land. But within that thousand years there were about 400 years after they were reestablishing the land approximately 400 years of silence so all these years god sending prophets to his people speaking his words i'm i'm here i'm with you and a king is coming the messiah is coming and i'm going to set it all right and they would have bad days and bad seasons but he would send his word into their community said the king is coming i'm I'm reigning and ruling all all over this it's all going to be okay and then for for whatever reason there was like 400 years of silence that means that there among the people of god there were people born and then died and never heard the word of a prophet that was established biblically. Never heard it. And you can imagine that people are wondering, did he forget about us? What about these promises? And that silence was broken by John the Baptist, who was sent to prepare the way for the king. It, it, takes, it takes time. And God has not forgotten his promises. What we do know is that through these genealogies, we're learning we can't judge God according to our time frame. And that's important for uh, impatient Americans who want everything instant. We want it right now. But we can't schedule God into our appointment book. He doesn't work like that. Well, God, it's about time for you to do this. About the, you know, I've planned my life and this is the day where you're supposed to come in and 
or it's about time for me to be rescued. It's about time for this thing to come to an end or this thing that I want to begin. And sometimes God takes uh, a while. We might even be tempted to think that he's not there anymore. and He's disappeared, that these promises that he's given us aren't even coming true. So we need to think about the genealogy. We need to think about God's mill grinding slowly. But when he does fulfill, he says uh, it grinds exceedingly fine. And when the promise comes, it always exceeds our imagination. When Christ came, what he did, they, they rejected him as king. But look what he accomplished. Incredible. I mean, he's not just a king. He's a, the king. And all that time, it was to grind it exceedingly fine to, to just blow our minds, basically. So when God fulfills, he does it in a big way that exceeds even our expectations. But if we're honest, there are times in our walk when we wonder, well, what, God, what are you doing? Are you even still up there? Why haven't you filled fill these promises? You said you'll give me the desires of my heart and I've poured my desires out day after day after day and nothing. There's nothing. There's not even a sign. Where are your promises or your promises to provide? And I can barely I don't even know how I'm going to survive financially. There's not enough money to pay my bills. It's not enough money to continue to support. There's not enough money to continue functioning in this capacity. And I have people to, to take care of and they rely on me. God, where is your promise to provide or where is your promise to bless? I haven't received any kind of favor or any kind of experience. I see no sign of you doing anything in my life. It's just like I'm out here on my own. Where are the answers to the prayers that you promise to fulfill if it's according to your will. Well, what's really happening is that the wheel's grinding. It's just grinding it finer and finer according to God's time. So that when it's fulfilled, it will exceed what we could ever have imagined. It's time. And sometimes God's wheel can grind us down. It just grinds us down. It wears us down. But it means that it's grinding so fine that our imaginations will, fa- will fall short of what the fulfillment will be. So what we can learn from these genealogies is that God is working out his purposes in all of us, all of his children whom he made a promise. Slowly but surely, slow is progress in God's kingdom. So sometimes we just need to go out like Abraham did. Just go out and look at the stars one more time. Because I can imagine Abraham would, re- would go back and recall that day where he was visited. And he would go out and he'd look in the stars. And I can imagine that Abraham looked at the stars quite a lot. Because he had to be patient, didn't he? Before God fulfilled that promise. Sometimes we might need to just go out and... Look into the stars or perhaps maybe what we need to do is as God's people is go out. And just look up in the clouds and be reminded, be reminded that Jesus said, I will return just like I ascended. So maybe just go outside and look up and look at the sky and, and, and let it serve as a reminder of the promise of God. The wheels are turning. It's coming. It's happening. 
The Apostle Paul often talks about as many hardships. They're real, they're painful, they're gut-wrenching as are ours sometimes. And yet, he calls them nothing. So how can you go from calling your pain and your experiences something so big and then turn around and say, but it's really nothing. Romans 8.18, and we'll close with this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, here's what he's doing. It's very practical. He is recognizing real life pain and hardship. It's there. He's not denying it. He's not explaining it away. But then what he's doing is he's, he's accumulating the promises of God. What God has revealed in his word and he holds it up. And he looks at what's to come and he thinks, here's where I am and here's what God has for me. When I look at this, that's when this is nothing. That's when we can endure. That's when we, we, we can hold on. It's because of that future glory. It's that fine, fine grinding that's taking place. And it makes these things look just like little alleys, little scratches. I want to be that kind of disciple. And I'd like for us to be that kind of community where we, we recognize hardship. We cry with each other. It's real. We don't explain it away like some faiths do. But also we, we focus on King Jesus and his promises that enable us to wait, that enable us to hold the line, that enable us to press on. The mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. So what I want to do to close this sermon time is I've given you a, a homework assignment. And that is for you to come prepared to share a verse that God has used in your life. Just one verse. We don't have time for chapters. Even if you can recite a whole book, please don't do it. Uh, not this Sunday. If you can recite a whole book, maybe we'll fit you in another Sunday. But um, <clears throat> I just want you to share one verse. Please cite the reference. And what we're going to do is we're going to hear God speak to us, his body, as we hear what God has been speaking to our hearts. We hear the promises or the verses that God has used specifically to reveal his future glory or to give us strength to um, to press on. And it will just I'm confident that it will minister to us as we hear promise after promise, word after word. And what we're going to do is we're just going to listen to the king, whatever you're experiencing right now, whether whether it's hardship or you're on a cloud nine. We want to hear the voice of the king. What is he saying to this little outpost? New Covenant Fellowship. Um, far as the, the dynamics of this, uh, I guess we could maybe just kind of start in the front and work our way back. Um, and I'm going to close when, when there's a little moment of silence, assuming that everybody has had their opportunity. Not everybody has to share. If you didn't come prepared, we understand that. So that's the, uh, that's the idea, to share the scripture that God has placed on your heart, that it might lift up the hearts of any weary saints. So we're going to uh, just kind of close our eyes. It'll be a time of prayer and ministry. Uh, you can open them if you need to read your verse, of course. <clears throat> but I'm going to open it up as we enter into this time, and then I'll close it as well. I'm going to open with uh, Isaiah 41, 10. 
So do not fear, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand.